Welcome to the Peds NP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm Becky Carson, Clinical Assistant Professor at Catholic University of America, and I'm pleased to announce that since Memorial Day is the unofficial start of summer, we can now bust out our bathing suits, throw on our shades, and try to drink every last drop of sugary deliciousness from those little plastic freezy pops while running through the sprinkler. I love summer, and I can find shade under any tree. So I love to be outdoors. And on today's podcast, I want to touch on some common issues of summer that are bound to bring kids into the primary care office, and you'll need to know how to manage them. In case you haven't already figured it out, I'm an extrovert and what some might call a chatty Kathy. I like to just talk to my patients, and that's exactly what taking a history has turned into as my practice developed from novice to expert. We can learn a lot from asking open-ended questions as we earnestly try to get to know our patients and their families. Because I'm in acute care, I really don't have the benefit of knowing a family well, so I'm starting behind the eight ball and I need to catch up quickly on relationship building. I remember one patient that was this very cute, red-headed, freckled little boy who came in for a headache. His head was throbbing, 10 out of 10, all over his head, and his mother described him as being lethargic. You already know how I feel about this word. Most people use it incorrectly. So I clarified and found out that he was sitting at the dinner table, staring straight ahead, wouldn't answer conversational questions from his family members, and the most concerning part was that he didn't want to eat his McDonald's. He even had an episode of non-bloody, non-bilious vomiting earlier in the day. But thankfully, I worked with some really awesome nurses who knew that our headache protocol involved giving parents oral rehydration. So by the time I started my history, he had already had a can of lemon-lime Gatorade. What does this have to do with summer, you ask? Well, his acute headache was already gone after the hydration, so there wasn't much for me to manage except to try to figure out what caused the headache. For once, I had extra time, so I started chit-chatting with him. I noticed that this sweet little ginger boy had bright red cheeks and arms. He looked sun-kissed, not flushed, so I asked, what have you been up to today? Come to find out, he spent the last eight hours in the pool. Well, that'll do ya. And what did he drink while he was in the pool besides the occasional swallow full of chlorine water? Oh, nothing? Okay. Mind you, it was 98 degrees, and I'm not talking about the boy band that's back on tour. Sometimes it's mind-boggling how much of my job is basic common sense that just doesn't click with parents because the presentation in kids may be subtle or counterintuitive. This patient spent all day in the water, yet he was dehydrated. Although I didn't get to assess him at the time of his peak symptomatology, my guess is that he was actually suffering from heat injury, also known as heat exhaustion. So I had to lead the mom by the hand to understand that swimming is a really great form of cardiovascular exercise, and it probably equated to him running miles on end. Yet because he was in the water, which wiped off the sweat and felt cool, He didn't appear as hot and sweaty as he would if he had run a 5K. Adult swim exists for a reason. It's not because adults are summer grinches who just want to swim laps and torture children on the edge of the pool. It's so that once an hour, the kid gets out of the pool to take a rest, to get something to drink, 
and preferably pee in the potty instead of the shallow end. One of the first symptoms of dehydration you'll see in children is headache. And you're going to see other forms of heat illness this summer, so it's extremely important that you recognize the signs and symptoms early before there are harsh consequences. Let's go back to heat injury. This is one of the most important heat-related illnesses for PCPs to recognize because children will present with complaints of headache, vomiting, weakness, dizziness, and typically dehydration from heavy sweating. On exam, they'll show you signs of dehydration with tachycardia and maybe even orthostatic hypotension. Luckily, their CNS symptoms are typically short-lived and easily reversed with hydration and rest in a cool environment, so there's unlikely to be any lasting end organ damage. Conversely, heat stroke is one of the most severe of the heat illnesses and the most lethal. Failed thermoregulation from overexposure results in central nervous system dysfunction that presents as agitation, confusion, delirium, or even coma. Unfortunately, more than one child will be left in the car this summer, and when a child's core temperature raises above 40 degrees Celsius, it can be deadly. So warn parents at well visits never to leave their children in the car, no matter how short the errand. One last type of heat injury that I saw a lot of when I was in Washington, D.C. was heat syncope. D.C. is literally a swamp, and tourists from all over the country would get off the bus and spend the day walking around the National Mall. You could always tell the kids who came from New England and the other cool climates, because they were the ones who ended up in the emergency department after passing out. So they'd been outside in the sweltering heat for like eight hours, standing in line to look at a monument. Vasodilation and venous pooling start to occur, and suddenly they're at the toes of Abraham Lincoln. Take these patients to a cooler place, hydrate them, and allow their symptoms to normalize. You should manage this the same way you would vasovagal syncope, with caution, a good history and exam, and perhaps an EKG. But generally, unless there are other red flags, you don't need a cardiology consult. Pools are a great way to stay cool in the summer, but again, the PCP needs to offer sound advice to parents on how to keep their kids safe. Begin swim lessons early and never, ever leave your child unattended by the pool or any body of water for that matter. And that includes a bathtub or kiddie pool in the front yard. We also want to talk about sun protection when we talk about pools because water can reflect UV rays. But we should talk about sunscreen for daily use too, as well as other preventative measures. The American Cancer Society, Centers for Disease Control, and National Council on Skin Cancer Prevention recommend sun-safe behaviors such as wearing protective clothing and hats, seeking shade, wearing sunglasses, applying sunscreen, among others. Sure, okay, you're thinking, one more answer to put in my mental test bank. But this is more than just regurgitating recommendations. One of my goals at the PZNP is to give you practical tips that you can use to make those recommendations make sense, and then you can more easily implement them into practice. Here's what I mean. A couple of weeks ago, one of my students asked me which brands of sunscreen I like the best. This was a valuable question for a couple of reasons. My professor and role model, Marsha Lormer, always told me to have an opinion. If you don't have one, get one, she'd say, because parents who ask your opinion on simple things like brands are building their provider-patient relationship with you. 
If you don't have an opinion, they'll go find someone who does. My perspective is a little less customer service oriented and more to the point of saying if you don't have an opinion on a product or a practice, then you're not deep enough in understanding it. What do I always say? Take it back to the physiology and understand what is going on with your patient. Then you can make an educated recommendation with a family who trusts your pediatric knowledge base. I'll show you what I mean with a sunscreen example. So we all know that SPF is the sun protective factor, and it's a measure of how much UV light is required to produce a sunburn on the protected skin compared to unprotected skin. The number goes up the higher the protection is. We want an SPF of 15 or higher, although there's no real added benefit after SPF of 50. And we want coverage of UVA and UVB rays. Well, for kids, SPF is only part of it. I think the vehicle in which it is delivered matters too. For instance, I've taken care of children in the emergency department with partial thickness burns from using spray sunscreen at the beach. These were formerly called second-degree burns. They're the ones that are much deeper and they get blisters. You've still got to rub in that spray and wait for it to dry, so it's not ideal for a sweating child or a child who wants to go in the water, which is pretty much all of them. So I strongly recommend against the spray, despite its perceived convenience. As a mom, I like the stick sunscreen because I can keep it in my bag and whip it out super fast. I can get my kid covered in seconds without the liquid mess. And speaking of whipped, I love the whipped sunscreen for the same reason. I can tell exactly where I'm getting coverage. We all know that we should apply sunscreen naked. And the whipped consistency is a little less greasy feeling and rubs in more easily. You'll notice that I didn't talk about brands because this isn't about promoting products. I want you to take this advice and consider your local population, what will be affordable and available to your patients, then build your own practice because you deserve to have your own opinion too. Remember to tell parents that SPF doesn't relate to time. It's a factor of how protected you are when you're wearing sunscreen compared to when you're not. So more reapplication with sufficient volume of sunscreen will be needed every two hours when the sun is overhead compared to when it's low in the sky. Tell parents with young babies who are under six months to get outside in the morning before 10 a.m. and to cover up because we don't want our babies in direct sun. Babies burn easier due to an incomplete development of their stratum corneum. That's the outermost layer of the epidermis. Babies under six months shouldn't wear all over sunscreen, only small local applications like on their face or hands if they aren't covered by protective clothing or staying completely in the shade. There are different types of sunscreen too. Mineral sunscreens are physical blockers of sunlight. Think of that white lifeguard nose. It's essentially diaper cream, zinc oxide, or titanium dioxide. There are chemical sunscreens that absorb UV rays and transmit them out as heat. But be careful because they may not block UVA rays, and some of these products that contain avobenzone or octocrylene were recently outlawed in Hawaii because of their harmful effects on coral reefs. Who thought sunscreen would be so complicated? And what makes it harder is balancing safe sun exposure with anticipatory guidance for parents on getting outside and being active while getting a small daily dose of sunny vitamin D. 
It's easy to miss this anticipatory guidance on children whose well child checks occur in the fall and winter months. So you'll need to think creatively how you will reach your patients with this important guidance no matter when their birthday is. Maybe you've noticed I've had the pool on my mind this week. I'll do my best not to get sunscreen on the microphone as I head off on summer vacation this weekend. Don't worry, I've got a super cute wide brim hat, a high neck bathing suit, and SPF 50. Oh, and my son has full sun protection too. The big take home today is no different from most episodes of the Peds NP. I want you to think deeply about what is going on with your patient on a systemic level, maybe even a cellular level and intimately understand what is happening so that you can critically think and make recommendations that work for your unique patients. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.